little sound check has the sound. Feels so loud from this perspective, but I will trust you. So before we start, I just want to say, um, last night I made a kind of flip comment in the chanting about being tone deaf or being deaf, and I just want to apologize for the impact that may have had on people. Um, yeah, really sorry about that. So here we are in the Dharma talk meditation period. Practice listening from that place of presence and embodiment. You can trust that what's important will stick. And also, um, all these talks are being recorded, so you can listen to them again. So this couple, uh, Alice and Davy were um, going to spend, they were in Minneapolis and they wanted to spend their 25th wedding anniversary in a warm place, so they made plans to go on vacation to Florida. And they were going to stay in the same uh, quaint, kind of rundown motel that they had stayed in for their wedding night 25 years earlier. And they're both kind of busy and traveling a lot, so they decided that the only way it would work out is if Davy went ahead and Alice joined him the next day. This is in the early days of the internet. So when Davy got to the hotel, he's like, oh, it's been renovated and they have internet. They had a little terminal, dating myself here, a little terminal in the lobby where you could log into your, the internet and send emails. So he thought, oh, you know, I'll send an email to Alice. Um, back then, the ancient days, phone calls cost a lot of money. So he thought, well, I'll just use the internet. So he typed in her email, alice526 at aol.com. <laughs> but he mistyped it. He typed it, alice527. And um, meanwhile, alice527 at aol.com was this woman whose husband had just suddenly died of a heart attack. 
and she was this grieving widow, very young, in her like mid forties, and uh, she was at home, and she uh, thought, "Oh well, you know, I'll just check my email. I'm sure I've gotten some nice messages from family and friends, and maybe this will cheer me up a little bit." So she had her teenage son log her into the internet, and uh, he went into the other room, and then he heard a scream and a thud that she had fainted to the ground. And he looked at the screen and the email said, Dearest Alice, I have arrived. (laughs) They have internet here now, so I thought I'd send you an email. (laughs) All is ready for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) P.S. Sure is hot down here. Feel the joy of joy. <laughs> um, there's this article that was circulating in the internet recently about this woman who went to Iceland on a vacation tour, and she was part of a tour group. And this wasn't on the news wires, but it, she's only described as an Asian woman. So this Asian woman is in Iceland. She went on a trip, and apparently she uh, stopped at a rest. They stopped at a restaurant, and she changed her clothes. And when she came back to the bus group, they didn't recognize her, and they thought she was missing. So this massive search commenced with helicopters and policemen and all the people in the community like searching through the woods, and she just joined them. <laughs> Apparently, she didn't recognize the description of the missing person as her. And then it's like three or four in the morning where she suddenly realized, oh, they're looking for me. (laughs) And the headline was, Missing Woman Finds Herself in Iceland After Joining Her Own Search Party. (laughs) And what I love about this is, like, did did they find her? Was she really lost? Um, And this is kind of how practice is. Like, so many of us are searching This is the nature of samsara. It's like we're walking through the desert looking for something that will quench the longing of this world, a place where we can rest, where we can feel like we belong, unburdened. And often the idea we get of how to find this place is uh, searching for the right set of conditions. If I can just arrange everything just so, all the things that are pleasing, lined up here for my enjoyment, all the things that are unpleasant or unpleasing or denied or put to the side. And more and more you can see the implausibility of this as a reliable path for happiness and well-being. You know, we can't control most of the conditions that affect us. And even if we get things lined up just so, you know, if something changes... Our minds change or something else changes. It's like if you, uh, you're single and you meet that person and you go, this is it, soulmates. We clearly were lovers in a distant lifetime. And then a month goes by and you realize why you haven't kept in touch for 2,000 years. <laughs> this is how the mind is. 
So the theme of this retreat is, are these five hindrances, desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and doubt. Um, these states that show up in the mind all the time, in daily life, and in retreat, the experience tends to be amplified. You know, almost everything on retreat gets sort of like bigger and louder and um, more troublesome. And the states of mind and heart are not themselves the problem. Like thoughts appear, thoughts come, thoughts go. And then the practice instruction we're given with the hindrance is simply to know their presence or their absence. That's just it. Is desire here or is it absent? Is aversion here or is it absent? These experiences only become a hindrance when we are caught in them, confused by them, they're covering over um, masking what's really happening in our experience, that we're struggling to make them go away, uh, and they're impeding our sense of well-being. This is from The Onion. <laughs> Inspired man bolts out of bed at 3 a.m. to jot down a great new worry. <laughs> Patterson, New Jersey, quickly kicking off the sheets and reaching for a notepad, Local 27-year-old Kyle Dowling reportedly sprang out of bed at 3 a.m. to jot down an idea for a brand new worry. Sometimes the best, most crippling anxieties just come to you in the middle of the night, so it's good to have a pen and paper nearby to record them. If I don't immediately write them down, there's a good chance I'll totally forget them a few hours later. <laughs> So ill will is this range of experiences from hatred, rage, to just the niggling, just not quite right. The flip side of desire, which Booker will be talking about tomorrow. And um, we were talking about it, and I was just reflecting that, you know, desire has a kind of quality of longing or... Um, like a loneliness kind of flavor and uh, aversion has more of a kind of like impulse to lash out, wanting to strike, wanting to go away, wanting something to go away. So we can reflect what's the cost of ill will. It takes a lot of energy. It uh, costs us in our relationships and our, uh, the way we relate to other people. And aversion is often multi-layered, you know? It has this quality of masking, like what's beneath the aversion. Like I find that almost all the things that I'm really angry about, if I drop below that impulse to lash out or fight, it's like, it's usually heartbreak. It's usually a kind of deep grieving and there's a way in which anger is like a stronger emotion and maybe easier for the, for the system to bear. The Buddha called anger an arrow with a honey tip and a poison root. And I love that because anger in many ways is quite appealing. We, you know, we feel like the rush of adrenaline. We, we might get our way by being angry. People might fear us, which we might enjoy. Uh, but inevitably, at some point, we get to that poison root. And it's like, however it manifests for us, like for me, it's like an adrenal fatigue kind of 
blah, sickness feeling. The Buddha often likened ill will to a sickness and freedom from ill will as being cured from a sickness. There's a famous story of the monk and the samurai, uh, this huge, tough samurai, you know, renowned, battle-worn samurai came to a, uh, a well-known monk who was revered for his wisdom. And samurai is kind of a gruff dude, so he's like, monk, teach me about heaven and hell. And the monk said, teach you? You're too stupid. You're a disgrace to the samurai, right? Get out of my sight. I can't bear to even look at you. And in that moment, the samurai was so angry, he unleashed his sword and began to swing it at the monk's neck. And just the instant before it reached the monk's neck, the monk said, that's hell. And because he was so skilled, he stopped just short of his neck, resheathed his sword, and then he felt like overcome with gratitude and compassion, like this monk had literally risked his life in this teaching, that he fell to his knees, sort of weeping in gratitude and compassion, and the monk said, that's heaven. There's a a little bit of a tangent, but there's a Buddhist text called the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification, Dates from about the fifth century, and they have this uh, like kind of reminds me of like a personality test you might see on the internet. But this is fifteen hundred years old. That puts people into three categories of types. So the types in this Buddhist view are the greedy type, the aversive type, and the delusional type. So the greedy type is the person that walks in the room and they see everything's beautiful. Oh, it's such a beautiful statue. That would look so great on my mantelpiece. And they appreciate the finer things in life. They can be generous and and compassionate. Uh, The aversive type sees that, oh, well, that statue is slightly off kilter. That painting is slightly crooked. You know, they see the things that are wrong with things. And the flip side of the aversive personality is like they can have discerning wisdom. They see what's wrong and they know how to fix it. Uh, and then the delusional person never makes it to the room. <laughs> wandering around the halls, not sure where they're supposed to be. <laughs> so I have an aversive mind. Uh, so a practice that I've been doing. I think I'm pretty good at the level of hatred don't have a lot of hatred, uh, which has been work, actually. When you look around the world, there's lots of things one could legitimately hate. So the practice I've been doing for myself is, I call it practice not complaining. And so I literally have made it a practice to not complain out loud. I've enlisted people. Uh, my wife has uh, been in, in conscripted for this task to just gently point out Oh, is that a complaint? <laughs> and not surprisingly, usually the reaction is, ah, yes, that's a complaint. And, you know, like, there's a feeling that uh, an intuition or a sense that the complaining will actually help in some way. Um, and what I found is that, at least for me, that's almost never the case, that the complaint leads to this 
what the Buddha called papancha, you know, and it's like, and another thing, and another thing, and that thing, the time, you know, it just keeps going and it gets louder and louder and louder. Often the complaint is a quarrel with something outside my change to control, quarrel with how things are. I might have a quarrel with this body aging, and that quarrel is just, I'm not going to win that quarrel, so there's no point in having it. And this practice has been really helpful because you begin to recognize that even these subtle forms of ill will have an afflictive quality. They impede our ability to be peaceful and equanimous. So, you know, I'm trained as a lawyer. I've been a corporate real estate lawyer for 30 years. I often teach meditation to lawyers. Lawyers tend to be aversive types. We're actually trained in our legal training to imagine all the worst possible scenarios and account for them. And this actually profoundly affects the mind. Um, The Buddha said, whatever a person contemplates and ponders, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So if you spend a lot of time complaining, you get really good at complaining. That becomes the, the framework of the mind, the Neuroscientists say neurons that wire together fire together. So we actually develop more efficient pathways to access ill will the more we practice it. So this is like a great reason to be here, to be on a contemplative path. Um, Because if we're not intentional about cultivating wholesome qualities like kindness, compassion, generosity, patience... Um, we end up cultivating whatever is in the ether. We end up just picking up what we pick up from society, from the internet, and it is by design, uh, at least on the internet and media, it's by design jarring and shocking. That's how they get our attention. So you're always practicing something rather than leaving it to chance, we've taken the opportunity to practice something that's good for the, our own sense of well-being. So the Buddha had a lot to say about ill will. When I started this talk, I had about 15 pages of quotes talking about ill will. I'm only going to share a few of them. And the first one is a very graphic, kind of violent image, uh, which I think is exaggerated for effect. So I'm going to share it. The Buddha said, speaking to his followers, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely limb by limb with a two-handed saw, those among you who would not let their heart get angered, those among you who would let their heart get angered would not be doing my bidding. This is a very high bar. (laughs) Even if bandits attack you, don't complain. He goes on, even then, you should train yourself. Our minds will be unaffected, and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill, with no inner hate. Again, this high standard comes from the understanding that when we have a mind of ill will, or say words that are tinged with ill will, it affects us. Bandits are long gone. It's like it said that uh, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and hoping the other person gets sick or 
The Buddha described it as picking up a hot coal to throw at someone, and in the process we get burned. So he goes on to say, we will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill, and beginning with them, we shall keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. This is how you should train yourself. So when the deliverance of loving kindness is cultivated in this way, but this says no limiting action remains here. And they have these sort of like funny similes that are probably more meaningful in the time. Just as the vigorous conch blower could make himself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too when deliverance of mind is cultivated by loving kindness, no limiting action remains and I love this phrase, no limiting action remains. It's, um, that when we have ill will and anger, resentment, sometimes I even put boredom in this class, all the things that aren't metta, that these states limit us. They impede our ability to see the liberative truth of how things are, and they agitate the system in a way that makes it hard to be peaceful. I once went on a long retreat, uh, well over two months, and then I came back to the office, and uh, I have this client who uh, is very pushy, so he will call me and leave a voicemail on my office phone, then he'll call my cell phone, leave a voicemail, then he'll send me a text, then he'll send me an instant message, then he'll call one of my colleagues and say, where's Kulu? And all this is happening, like, before my eyes. You know, I can see all the little buzzers going off. I can see my colleagues stick their head in. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty dialed in. I'm like, okay, yeah, anger is arising. <laughs> I can feel heat. I can feel the clenching of the jaw. I can feel a tightness in my stomach. And I had it in my mind that I was going to really, like, set some healthy boundaries in a loving way. <laughs> so I... Uh, I waited, noticed the, you know, he always does this, and the, uh, finger wagging, it's okay, let that be, this be with the body, and anger, all these emotions, if we don't keep feeding them with these thoughts, they arise, they peak, and then they pass away, so that happened, and then I picked up the phone and I called him, and he said the word hello, as one does when you call them, and something in the tone of his voice, I could just see that he was really stressed out and suffering. And all that judgment, all that idea about healthy boundaries just fell away. And the impulse was, oh, how can I help you? What can I do to be of service? And that wasn't something that I had practiced, really. It was just a kind of a fruit of the practice. So in, in many religious viewpoints, you get punished for your sins. And Buddhism doesn't really have the concept of sins, but if it did, it's almost like the sins themselves would be the punishment. since the anger itself is the punishment. 
So we can take away from this that anger is bad, we shouldn't get angry. This is actually a problem in spiritual communities where someone's angry and then they get dismissed or people say practice harder. Important things that need to be illuminated don't get illuminated. Anger is actually a natural mammalian response. Actually, other mammals have similar arousal responses to threats or danger. I do, I do take the teachings at their word that it is possible to uproot these streams of ill will, greed, and confusion. And this is one of the ways that awakening is described as the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. But until we're there, anger is like a part of daily life. And it's not the anger itself that's a problem. It's just the problem happens when we get carried away with that anger and we do things that harm ourselves or others. Also, I think sometimes anger can be confused with agency. Like I have a lot of friends who are in social justice movements and they get all their agency from their anger, which is not a bad use of the energy of anger, but then it's also exhausting. And it's hard to be in that field of anger all the time. And actually, I think if they could find their agency from love, because love is at the root of all desires to make the world better, um, it might be more sustainable. So the Buddhist path proposes a kind of radical accountability. Now, sometimes people have a strong reaction to this, but like the proposition embedded in the teachings is that any reactivity, anger, any reactivity that arises in this mind-heart is ours. It's our responsibility. The seeds for that come from this body-heart-mind. Not to say that the external isn't important and we're not influenced by the external, but moving away from blaming others or blaming conditions to like stepping into our own agency, putting ourselves in the driver's seat. There's a kind of commitment to own our anger also without blaming ourselves for it or seeing it as a problem. This anger is also, like many strong emotions, communicating something that needs attention and maybe even revealing a kind of hidden connectivity. So this long retreat, this two-month retreat I was talking about, this was in uh, February of 2017, a time of great dramatic change in the American political landscape. And uh, I went into silence for two months, <laughs> completely isolated from what was happening and unfolding. And I began to feel this experience of like just, it was kind of a multiple hindrance attack. It was like <laughs> restlessness and aversion and worry and doubt. Like, should I really be here? Like, is there going to be a world to return to when I get back? And uh, I began to call this conglomeration of experiences dread. I was just feeling a lot of dread. And um, yeah, I've been practicing about 28 years at that point. So I had it in my mind that I would have some Dharma jujitsu that would just take down the dread, 
trying everything, every skillful means to make this dread go away, and it, it just persisted. And I went into a practice discussion meeting, and the teacher said, uh, I'm so sorry that you're suffering, but I'm not sorry that you're feeling dread. And then he paused really dramatically. and was like, okay, wh- wh- where are we going with this? <laughs> he said, the dread reminds you that your heart still cares about something. You still care about your values. There's things that you cherish and that you love. That dread is actually a manifestation of love. And that completely changed my relationship to that experience, which today persists. Like I often have this feeling of dread, but it's become a friend because it reminds me that I'm not numb, I'm not jaded, I'm not cynical. I want to say something about self-improvement. You know, we live in such a culture of self-improvement. And uh, the paradox, because on the one hand, of course, we do want to cultivate beautiful qualities of mind, to develop skills and be uh, better in some way. Uh, but also I find that Self-improvement is often a kind of, has embedded in it a kind of self-aversion. That, um, almost a kind of violence. Like there's some, I'm going to negate the wholeness of this being in favor of some other better improved version of me. So I'd like to share a quote from Jim Sinclair, who's an advocate for the autistic community. It's not really a comment on autism because I have no basis to make that comment, but these words were really powerful for me in illuminating this notion. He says, when parents say, I wish my child did not have autism, what they're really saying is, I wish the child I had does not exist and I had a different non-autistic child instead. This is what we hear when you pray for a cure, that your fondest wish for us is that someday we will cease to be and strangers you, you can love will move in behind our faces. Every time, I've read this hundreds of times and every time it's just like a punch in the gut because I, I feel that own, the streams of that own dialogue in my own, in my own mind. So really good to be aware when the practice tilts in that direction, when the wholesome desire for freedom, for liberation, gets conflated with a kind of self-aversion. One of my teachers says that he spent 20 years trying to hate himself into being a better person. It just doesn't work. We practice bringing metta to all parts of ourselves, even the parts we don't like. So how do we practice with these energies of the hindrances, I'm going to give you an acronym. It's called RAFT. And the raft is often a symbol in Buddhism of like crossing over to the other shore, use our raft. So the R in RAFT stands for recognize. This is where like a list like the hindrances is really helpful because we have a map and constellation. The more and more you use the map, the more and more you can see, oh, yeah, I recognize this, this is doubt. I recognize this, this is restlessness. 
takes practice. You know, one clue that a hindrance might be operating is that feeling of stress or struggle or suffering. So you can even, like, just not feeling quite right, just go through the list. You know, what's present here? And develop a clearer comprehension, a more intimate, immediate knowing of that experience. So R, recognize, A, allow. Like when we get hindered in some way, it's quite natural to be in resistance to that experience of being hindered, and that's just adding more agitation to the mix. They call this the second arrow, like we're having some experience and then we add recrimination or blame or shame or woe is me or all the other things that are just extra. For me, allowing has been very much connected to a feeling of relaxing in the body. That almost always in the first encounter with something stressful, there's like a tensing of the body that happens. So allow, just just for this moment, this is how it is anyway, just allow it to be. So recognize, allow, and then the F is feel. Uh, Just feel what's present, feel the feeling in the feeling. Just allow that energy to be illuminated in the light of awareness. Watch how it moves and shimmies and shakes and transforms. And then the T in raft is tease apart. So this is where we can get even more nuanced in the way we're investigating our experience. So teasing apart, you can notice that in any experience there's a story. So there's a thought about what's happening, a paradigm, a viewpoint, a perspective. You can notice what that perspective is, bow to that part of you. You can notice what emotions are present, constellations of sensations that we recognize as particular emotions. And then coming to the level of sensation, this is often where it's most fruitful. So what's present in the body? Tension, tingling, vibration, pulsing, throbbing, tightness. Where is it located in the body? What's its shape? Is it moving? Is it static? Some people have a color or sound or number associated with it. Just to really fully give yourself over to this experience. To paraphrase Thich Nhat Hanh, without mindfulness, there's only anger in the room. With mindfulness, the room is no longer full of anger because mindfulness is present. And that awareness that's paying attention to the experience of aversion is not angry. That awareness that's paying attention to the experience of restlessness is not restless. This is how we can be with anger in a non-angry way. And in this attending and befriending, we can let the energies take their course to let the energy of ill will naturally dissipate. Sometimes I, I, if there's a lot of ill will in the field, I try to imagine that I'm just a really large vessel and I'm just creating a space for this energy to do its thing. Um, and I found that to be quite helpful. 
huge part of this practice is learning to be comfortable with that which is unpleasant or uncomfortable. Like by and large, when we're struggling with the hindrances, it's because they're unpleasant and we're struggling to make them go away. We develop this capacity to tolerate or bear witness or be with unpleasant experience, then we're less captive to conditions that are outside our control. And we're all doing this already. Like it starts very simple. It starts with uh, somebody was saying, you know, not scratching that itch or sitting still, even though every fiber in your being wants to bolt up and get out of the room. Or maybe grief shows up and we just allow that to be there and touch into it deeply. And this is a little bit like going to the gym. You know, the weights have to be heavy enough that we actually get stronger, but if they're too heavy, then we get injured. We have to develop this discernment. Um, I was sharing with some of the practice groups, my approach is if there's a strong emotion that's about to arise, I'll ask myself, honest assessment in this moment, can I manage this? Is this manageable? Our ability to manage varies with so many, you know, our level of energy, our level of enthusiasm, what we've been with uh, earlier in the day. And if it's manageable, then just manage it for that moment. It's that moment is all that's being asked. And then at any time, we could stay in our agency. At any time, if it feels like it's overwhelming or it's not helpful to come back to our anchor, to open the eyes, to use whatever tools we have in our toolkit to bring back, bring ourselves back into self-regulation. So Shantideva says, uh, where would I possibly find enough leather with which to cover the surface of the earth? But wearing leather just on the soles of my shoes is equivalent to covering the earth with it. I cannot restrain external, the external course of things But if I restrain this mind of mine, what need would there be to restrain anything else? Unruly beings are as limited as space. They cannot possibly all be overcome. But if I overcome thoughts of anger, this will be equivalent to vanquishing all foes. In this practice, we build our capacity to to be with the difficult experience of anger that to sit in the fire of that, you know, as the title of the retreat suggests, to be, know that we might be buffeted about it, but we're building this capacity to be steady, even in the face of that. And the inspiration to cultivate this capacity to be with the difficult is, comes from a recognition that life moves in waves, waves much better to learn to surf them than to be knocked over by them. And so many of the things that affect us are outside our control. There's an excerpt from Tore Zenji's Bodhisattva Vow. How can we be ungrateful to anyone or anything? Even though someone may be a fool, we can be compassionate. If someone turns against us, speaking ill of us and treating us bitterly, it is best to bow down. This is the Buddha appearing to us, finding ways to free us from our own attachments, 
the very ones that have made us suffer again and again. Now on each flash of thought, a lotus flower blooms, and on each flower, a Buddha. May we share this mind with all beings so that we and the world together may grow in wisdom. I love this notion of uh, hindrance appears and we just bow down. It can even be a bow of gratitude, like right on time, teacher has arrived. Now on each flash of thought, a lotus flower blooms, and on each flower, a Buddha. It's the, like, the way we relate to the internal stream of thought, that each thought can be the seed of a kind of awakening. And as much as we might prefer a meditation that's calm and spacious and blissful, where we feel dialed in and connected, my experience, the most transformative experiences are catalyzed when things are really tough. It takes friction to polish a jewel. Sometimes they say whatever is in the way is the way. In the practice discussion meetings, I'm, I'm, a lot of us use terms like struggle, challenge, difficulty. And on the one hand, I want to acknowledge the legitimacy of that. That's like a real thing. Like we do struggle. I'm not sure who said this, but uh, I know the burden's heavy as you drag it through the night. The guru says it's empty, but it doesn't mean it's light. And if we deconstruct this sense of struggle or challenge or difficulty, it's often as simple as hindrance is present. We don't like it. It's unpleasant. We want to make it go away. And there's tremendous freedom in realizing that the struggle part is optional. We can actually train ourselves to just allow, to relax into that experience. So, um, most of my training in meditation has been here and also inside LA, which is really a sister organization and... uh, with the hindrances, the emphasis has been, much as I've described it, feel the hindrance, befriend it, learn from it, allow it to be, relax into it. Um, there was a Thai monk that came to speak at LA, and he said, somebody asked him, how do you work with the hindrances? And he said, destroy the hindrances! <laughs> <laughs> And I, uh, I had the privilege of sitting a retreat here a few years ago with uh, Venerable Nalio. And he, this is the practice instruction he gives in meditation. This is the beginning of it. He says, rest the mind on the body as the body rests on the earth. Remove the hindrances. <laughs> Feel the joy of an unhindered mind. <laughs> And, you know, I'm listening to this and I'm like, holy, holy cow, like, what, what's going on here? Uh, I didn't have the guts to ask a question, but someone finally did ask a question, like, can you say a little bit more about removing the hindrances? 
And he said, you know, it's the only time I saw him get slightly annoyed. He's like, I thought this was an advanced group. <laughs> and this was really eye-opening. And then he, he gave a little dharmet. You know, it's like, okay, with, uh, I notice desire is present. I'll contemplate the dis- disadvantages of it, see that it's not lasting. You know, what's the cost of this aversion? You know, with restlessness, he was saying, I can bring, just bring joy into the field. And... Uh, this is something I think worth contemplation. Like so much in this practice, we're in the balance between surrendering to this moment as it is and using our agency to cultivate wholesome qualities of mind. Like both these things are in the teaching to move towards wholesome and abandon the unwholesome, but also develop this capacity to be steady and still. So uh, after this retreat, I was sort of reading up on some articles that. Analia had written about this, and he said, he described this as a practice. He's like, spend some time um, really developing an intimacy to recognize the absence and presence of the hindrances, and then when that is mastered, you can um, just vanquish them or abandon them. And I was having a discussion with another teacher about this, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, my teacher said that too. He said, you spend some time just becoming intimate with them, and then you'll develop this capacity to vanquish them. And I said, how much time did that <laughs> He said, 20, 30 years. <laughs> so everything we experience in this life, all measures of pleasure, all measures of suffering, these are mental events. All experience is appearing in awareness. And it's really only one of seven things, or one of six things. I added one. One of six things, it's sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, and mind objects appearing in awareness. So when we change our minds, we change everything. And that thing that we're searching for, it's possible that even like the woman in Iceland, it's not really lost. It's rather, it's right here in every moment, just waiting for us to notice. Sogyal Rinpoche says, imagine a sky, empty, spacious, and pure from the beginning. The essence of mind is like this. Imagine a sun, luminous, clear, unobstructed, and spontaneously present. The nature of mind is like this. Imagine that sun shining out impartially on us and all things, penetrating all directions. The energy of mind, which is the manifestation of compassion, is like this. Nothing can obstruct it, and it pervades everywhere. This sort of, like, I call this the capital M mind, the field in which all experience is rising and passing away. It it's the manifestation of compassion because it doesn't reject anything. You know, if the ears work, a sound arises, it appears in consciousness. It's just the little M mind that comes in and says, I don't like this, it's too loud. I'm trying to meditate here. Um, when we can connect from this place of knowing this capital M mind, it's already free, already unobstructed, Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be taken away. 
It's not preferencing one thing over the other. It has no complaint. And this is actually um, a profound peace. Nothing needs to be fixed. So I had, um, <clears throat> as a child, my father was involved in a Zen community. I, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. And it was sort of strange in this place that there was a Zen community. This Korean Zen master had a vision that he needed to start little centers all over the world. I think he had 300 of them. And the idea was that they wouldn't be in major urban areas. They would be in more far-flung places where they could find people who are interested in the Dharma. And this is kind of the Indian way. Like, my dad would just take him, take me with him. You know, it's five, and people are meditating. And I was a pretty mischievous kid, so I would, like, blow on people's faces. <laughs> and I'd do like this in front of them. Or sometimes I would just sit on someone's lap. And, um, and it was so profound. It made such an impact on me that like, no one was bothered by a child being a child. Like, the rules were just much more, it was just much more loving. You know, I'd sit in someone's lap and I'd feel a gentle embrace. And then I was squirming a little bit. I'd feel like I was being released. <laughs> and I didn't know that they were practicing this, but they were very attentive. Like, I noticed people would, like, come down to my level. They would actually listen to what I had to say. I had a lot to say back then, and <laughs> no, no one was that interested. Um, this actually became a lodestar for me when I uh, graduated from law school and I went to go work and, you know, was fortunate to get, like, one of the most coveted jobs and this storied law firm, the oldest law firm in L.A., and uh, was absolutely miserable. And as I was reflecting on how I wanted to be in the world and how I wanted to, what I wanted to experience, that flashbacks of that being a five-year-old and the joy and laughter and connectivity, openness, and that actually put me back on the path to practice. One time the Korean uh, master was coming to visit to give some Dharma teachings, and uh, my father and I picked him up at the airport, and uh, he was described to me as being very old. I think he was probably in his 70s, and uh, very childlike and buoyant and energetic. And so we got to the little house that was being rented as was our kind of sangha place, and... Uh, he like flung open the car door and he bounded out of the car and he bounded across the lawn and he bounded up a half a flight of steps and he was going to bound into the room. Uh, he didn't realize that the sliding grass screen was not open. And in the most cartoonish way, he bounced off the screen, rolled down a half a flight of steps, rolled across the lawn and was lying face up on the driveway, unconscious. I don't think I've ever been in a space that was more quiet in that moment. It seemed like even the birds and the crickets, and it was like, something's happening here. And we're just all kind of looking, I think. I, I, I distinctly remember, like, I was holding my breath, 
just to see, you know, what happened. And then uh, a member of the Sangha says, gosh darn it, we killed the master. (laughs) And I just, I love that irreverence. Like, just like a moment, like, we were all laughing, you know, couldn't help it. And then the master came too, and he started laughing and laughing. And laughing, and laughing. And the priesthood were all just like laughing, buckled over, crying. And I thought it was such a beautiful Dharma transmission that, you know, if that had happened to me, I might be angry, I might be ashamed, be sort of irritated, you know, uh, blaming all the things that you could legitimately experience. He really just went to laughter. And even later in the in the session when he was talking, he was like, like, just like kind of like holding his arm, you know, where he landed, but he was like, but he would hold his arm and then he would start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> you take that as like, some of, sometimes when I think of refuge in the Buddha, I remember that, that quality of being. So I'm going to read you a poem about the hindrances that is called In the Crucible of Alchemy. In realms of stillness, truths begin to flow. When hindrances emerge, their presence shown. With mindful gaze, we recognize their face and embark on a journey to embrace their grace. The first hindrance Desire's tempting call we learn to recognize as shadows fall. With open hearts we feel its longing plea, accepting its presence, but not enslaved will be. The second hatred with its fiery wrath we recognize its flames and its destructive path. With gentle breath we accept its fiery hue and seek metta's balm to soften and undo. Next, sloth and torpor's heaviness we greet, recognizing its pull, its urge to deplete. We accept its grasp, but gently we release, awakening energy and inviting peace. Restlessness, the fourth, its constant stir, we recognize its chaos, its pull to deter. With calm abiding, we accept the swift pace and nurture stillness, finding solace and grace. Lastly, doubt the hindrance that veils the way. We recognize its haze obscuring the day. With unwavering faith, we accept its doubts tied, teasing it apart, seeking truth to reside. In realms of stillness, hindrances we embrace. With wisdom's touch, their essence we trace. We feel their presence. Lessons unfold, teasing them apart with compassion untold. So let's embark on this journey of the soul, embracing hindrances, making us whole. In the realm of stillness, wisdom we find, harmony unveiled in the depth of our mind. That was written by chat GPT. (laughs) (laughs) It's not bad. It sort of like makes me wonder about the job security of this. (laughs) <laughs> 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 
I'll end with another poem. This is Allow by Dana Folds. There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild, the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and successes. When loss rips off the door of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. And the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. When loss rips off the door of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for your practice. Taking whatever is useful. Surrendering whatever is not. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.